Good morning, everybody. So good to see you all this morning. I'm going to plunge right headlong into this message. I got a lot to share. I don't want to keep you here past 2 a.m. Just kidding. Uh, We're not going to make this on. The teens are like, man, we're in the service today, and he's going to go five hours. Um, That's not going to happen. Teens, it's great to have you here. Amen. Great to have you. I see some campus students here. That's exciting. Uh, And everybody else here, too, is also exciting. But uh, we're we're excited um, because we're going to do part two of, I thought, what was a great message that Mike gave uh, last week on love always protects. Am I way loud? (laughs) Michelle's like, yeah. Maybe we can. I'm going to back off the mic just a little bit. Um, But uh, so Mike did a great job with Love Always Protects uh, last week, and I'm doing Love Always Protects part two. No, part two. Any 80s movie fan just laughed at that, right? All the old people, maybe not. But um, uh, this is Love Always Protects part two, and um, we're going to go right back to where Mike started last week, and we've been kind of in this um, series of what is love, right? And so we've been going through uh, the last number of weeks. We've been staying in 1 Corinthians 13 about love is, right? And uh, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Let's see. Look at that. Um, And uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. I've got actually three translations of this verse up there. The first one is the New International Version. And the second translation is from the New English Translation or the, and uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Both of those translations have the identical, um, have the identical phrasing of this verse. But, and I put those two up there uh, advisedly. I've been reading a little bit on Doug Jacoby. If you're visiting with us, Doug Jacoby is a great Bible scholar who we trust and love and uh, very educated and very thoughtful. And his two favorite Bible translations right now are the Net Bible and the Holman Christian Standard. So that's why I went there. Um, but so the, the NIV, the good old NIV, which a lot of us uh, uh, know and love, says, Love always protects. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Amen? Love protects. Amen? Always. That's great. Here's what the other, a couple other translations have to say. Love bears all things. It's a little bit of a different feel, right? Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But I think, honestly, this concept of love always protecting or love bearing all things... This is something we could do the rest of the summer and not exhaust what this means in our lives and the impact of our lives. And, um, you know, the, uh, the Greek word that they're translating slightly differently is this, this word stego, which um, is basically to place under a roof, to cover over with a roof, or figuratively to endure because you're shielded. You're able to endure something because you're under protection. Or you're able to bear up because you're under the Lord's covering, if you will. Which is a cool, cool concept. So we're going to explore both of these aspects of, uh, of love, um, the, the protective nature of love. And we're going to really focus here on God and His nature. 
Not about how so much about how we need to protect, although we're going to talk about that. But we're going to talk about being inspired by God because it is His very nature to protect. It's His very nature. Do you like feeling protected? I think we like feeling protected. It definitely beats the alternative. Right? You ever felt just completely unprotected? It's not a good feeling at all. And it's, it's a great feeling to know that God's very nature is to protect. That's point one. God's very nature is to protect. We'll look at a couple quick Psalms excerpts here about God's nature. Psalm 68, verses 4 through 6. Sing to God, sing in praise of His name, extol Him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before Him, His name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in His holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. Isn't that beautiful? He leads out the prisoners with singing. (laughs) He doesn't just free the prisoners. I I think of uh, Paul and Silas, you know, singing in the prison and being led out by an angel, you know. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Okay, so there's that. Uh, But God loves to protect. It's in His very nature. I had two wonderful parents, but I'm so aware of so many who didn't have that advantage in life. And what I love about this is God is a father to the fatherless. He's a mother to the motherless. He's a brother to the brotherless. I was an only child. And often growing up, I wished I wasn't. Many of you are going, that explains a lot. But a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy dwelling. Have you ever been lonely? God sets the lonely in families. God's very nature is to protect, to embrace us. Psalm 91 Verse 1, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. This is actually, do you remember the slide that Mike popped up last week with the hen gathering her chicks under a wing, right? That was Luke 13, where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wing as a hen gathers her chicks, right? That's God's nature. He wants to cover us with his feathers and help us find refuge under his wings. It's a beautiful image. He's our shield and rampart. So, We know that's God's nature from some of these psalms, but let's look at the protective nature of God's love in action, shall we? Let's look at Jesus as a protector. Look in John 8, verse 1. I'm going to pop almost all the scriptures that uh, I'm going to reference are going to be up here. So you don't have to turn if you don't want to. Um, John 8, verse 1. This is Jesus displaying the protective nature of God's love. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. 
At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Oh, don't you want to know what he was writing? When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. There's so much conjecture about what Jesus might have been writing here. Some people are saying he was, or the conjecture is he's writing the names of each of the people in the crowd on the crowd and their, their sin list, you know. Probably not, but I thought that was kind of fun to think about. Uh, could you imagine observing your name and then you're starting to say the list of sins? Okay, I'm out of here. <laughs> because in verse 9 it says that this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. <laughs> Some wisdom. It's like, okay. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her. Notice this is the first time anyone talks to the woman. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Can you imagine the fragile state this woman was in in this situation? Can you imagine the amount of protection she needed? She was caught in the act of adultery. Who knows how how much she was clothed in this situation. There was no justice really wanted to be done. They didn't bring the man and the woman out. They just brought the woman out. All they cared about was trying to trap Jesus. They were using her as a pawn, yet she's feeling her life is being threatened. Are they going to kill me right now? Is this mob going to kill me? You know, one of my favorite descriptions of Jesus is one that was in a prophecy about him, that he himself quotes about himself. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. It speaks to the tenderness and gentleness and protective nature of Jesus. What does that even mean? That's a bruised reed. Okay? (laughs) That's a reed. You know, you've seen reeds just in random fields, and you've got a bit of the reed just hanging off there, just like barely... I don't know. That almost looks like it's in the process of breaking if it was really, you know. But Jesus sees a bruised reed, one that's not standing up straight. It's tipping over. It could fall over at any time. It could fall off. He won't break it. A smoldering wick he won't snuff out. That's from a lamp, like an oil lamp in the first century. And when a wick would start to smolder, the flame would start to flicker out, flicker out, and there'd be a lot more smoke. And people would just go, oh, that's done. Snuff it out, you know. And I love this concept that Jesus is so protective, caring. It's like, hey, I know this person is in a fragile state. I'm not going to just discard this person. I'm not just going to take this broken person and throw it out because it's useless. 
Amen. I'm not going to break a bruised reed. I'm not going to smolder. I'm not going to snuff out a smoldering wick. And if there was ever a bruised reed or smoldering wick, this woman was a bruised reed. She was a smoldering wick. And you've got a crowd that's kind of looking for blood or just looking to entrap Jesus. Yet Jesus' chief concern was for her heart, for her soul's protection, and to show her love. He didn't get caught up in the craziness. He was like, how can I help this woman be restored in her heart? Can you imagine the turmoil of that situation? And her also, she was involved in sin, right? There's guilt. There's fear. I'm sure there was just terror. She was mortified, yet Jesus, in just a couple sentences, restores her. That's God's heart. Have you ever felt fragile before? Have you ever felt like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick? Like, man, my flame may not be out, but it's just about to be out. I'm flickering right now. I may not be completely down in the field, but I am bruised. I am bent. I am beat up. You know, I was thinking about a few different situations in my life where I felt that way, and I don't want to trivialize. I'm not comparing this situation in any way to what this woman went through, but, you know, when you're going through a fragile time, that's, it doesn't matter how you're comparing it to anybody else. That's your heart going through it. Right. And the, a couple things that came to mind for me when I was a teen, um, my dad used to come to my soccer games, and he was my biggest, he was a great supporter. He, my dad was great, he loved me, but he was also an incredibly vocal critic. He was even like that with our son, Derek, to where Derek eventually asked Opa, his grandfather, he, he said, I don't want you to come to my games anymore, which was very tragic. I mean, it was sad, but that's because my dad would just, he wasn't trying to be mean, but he, he was just like, why didn't you, you know, and he didn't even know that much about soccer, which was the kicker. You know? <laughs> he came from Holland, so you'd think like he, he was this soccer, but then he would kick the ball with his toe, and I'm like, Dad, you never played soccer. How are you correcting me on all this stuff? But, um... You know, I, I had the worst game of my life, my varsity life. And I still remember the night. I remember it was under the lights. I remember it was Maine East. You guys know Maine East. No, I'm just kidding. It's in Chicago. But I remember the school. I remember the scenario. I remember every bad play I made, and I was crushed. And the last thing I wanted was to face my dad. But you know what he did? He took me out to IHOP <laughs> with actually another parent from, from our team and another teammate, and all they did was spend the time encouraging me. That was awesome. Man, did I need that. Yeah. I was flickering. The other time that came to mind was I finally, after years of being in college as an English-slash-psychology major but with a passion for music, I finally switched over with Sue's prompting to being an English major. Went to a different school, went to a, well, I'm, to a music major, <laughs> to be a music major. 
So I went to a music school and it was like the clouds parted, the angels sang. I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. Amen. Right? I'm going to be a musician. So the first concert, I was in a jazz band. It's a big band, right? And so, you know, in a jazz band, there's like four trumpet players, four sax players, but one piano player, right? So there's no safety in numbers. And so it was coming to my first big solo. It was where basically the entire band dropped out and I'm, it, and there's literally a spotlight. I'm on a stage, and I'm, I'm about to play. And I, got, I spent probably a month preparing this solo. It's jazz, so it's really supposed to be improvised. I was like, I'm leaving nothing to chance. <laughs> this thing is going to de- demonstrate everything I can do, you know? I was so prepared. That spotlight came on, and I... I was terrified. My hands were shaking. I did not execute anything close. I barely got out a semi little piece of improvisation. You know, I I executed about four percent of what I prepared, and I wanted to crawl off that stage. And again, the thing about my dad when my when I was an English major. Um, you know, my dad's like, okay, you know, whatever. You're going to teach? What are you going to do? You know, well, when I went into music, he's like, okay, and you're going to do what? You know, <laughs> compared to music, my dad was like, you know, English is where the money is, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, what am I going to hear? And I was crushed. And literally, talk about my flame flickering. I was just like, I'm, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to bag this. I'm going to quit music school. I mean, that's how I felt. I was crushed. And my dad took me aside and just said, don't worry about it. You're great. You've got the talent. Keep it going. But that's exactly what I needed. Because had he not done that and had I quit music, that would have changed the course of my entire life. I'm so grateful to be a musician. I'm so grateful I can... It's it's, it's who I am. But that would have changed the course of my life. But my dad protected my heart. He saw I was hanging on barely... And he encouraged me. You know, someone who also displays this incredible protective love in the Bible is Mary's husband, Joseph. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. In Matthew 1, verse 18, it says, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That's never happened before. (laughs) So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But I think that's a telling moment about Joseph's heart to protect his young bride. He's like, yeah, I know the law. I know she's been with someone else. I'm going to... Everything, even though she's violated our marriage covenant, is in his mind, right? The very next verse is the angel visiting and it gets cleared up. Joseph realizes, aha, okay? But prior to that, Joseph is like, okay, wow, I'm going to protect and cover over my young wife's sin here as much as I can. That's a hard to protect. Does that mean our hearts as as to imitate God's heart of protection, we don't ever address sin? No. But I am saying is, love and 
protection does cover over others' faults. It's a desire to do that. It's not this desire for justice. I'm going to broadcast your sin to everybody I can. I'm going to make sure you know about it. And we post it on Facebook. You know, It's, no, love protects. That's God's heart, right? Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. There's a desire to protect. That is God's nature. I mean, ultimately, isn't that why Jesus came? He came so that we could be protected from the ravages of sin. He came to shed His blood so that our sins could be covered. That's His heart for us. You know, the church is called to reflect that same heart, right? By protecting one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, it says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters... Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. I love that. That's God saying, the church should demonstrate my own heart of love and protection. And notice, he says, hey, warn those who are idle and disruptive. We're not talking about just protecting, you know, let's put a blanket over everything and not address sin. It's not what we're talking about. But it is, hey, if you're disheartened, encourage. If you're weak, let's get you help. Let's be patient, though, with everyone. Even those who are idle and disruptive, yeah, we need to warn them, but we need to be patient with them. Do you see the heart of protection? The heart of care? Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Make sure of that. That's God's heart. No eye for an eye in the fellowship, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. 1 Corinthians 12, we know this scripture about the body. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. I love that in the context of God wanting to protect us. Every part of the body is valuable. Right. Every part. And if there are certain parts being singled out for honor, those parts need to specifically seek out that main, those that maybe don't feel so honored and make sure they feel honored. Because they are vital. There's no one more or less vital in the body. The ear is not more vital than the eye. And I love that it says, hey, if you're going through a particularly difficult time, let's treat you with special care. There's a special modesty, a special protection. That's okay. Let's make sure that everyone feels like we have equal concern for one another. That's God's heart. And he set up the church to be a reflection of his heart, right? You know, a tiny example of protecting hearts. You know, Kristen sent out a little survey. I don't know how many of you took the little church survey, you know, about the things that we do as a church, meetings and such, right? There's a reason for that. The reason for that is so that we can all take a look at 
are people feeling part of what we do? Are they excited about it? Do they feel included? Is it a vital part of their life? You know, is it, is it something that that meets their needs? And what, one one of my favorite things that we do since we moved here is is the Church Olympics. I loved it. And I should love it because I happen to be on the winning team and I'm competitive, right? Yeah. And, you know, is there anything technically wrong with that? No. But what was interesting is back from the survey was, guess what? You know what we heard from the survey? Is people love the Church Olympics, but a number of people said, it's a little competitive. And I'm like, what? Who? Who? But guess what? You know, just because... Just because a few of us like some competition doesn't mean everyone does. Doesn't mean everyone feels, you know, I had the time of my life, it was a riot. It wasn't just because we won, but it was just a blast. But for those who maybe aren't as athletically inclined, I'm not saying good athletes, but even enjoy that kind of competition, maybe it doesn't, didn't feel as enjoyable for you. And I think that's what kind of came out. So we're doing a little bit of brainstorming. How can we make this a little bit more emphasizing teamwork and fun and being together rather than competition. You know? But that's a small way of just going, hey, how are how is the body working together? How is everybody being honored? The people who like that competition just didn't look at that survey and go, well, too bad for those folks, I guess, you know, because this is what this is. So get in line, people. We're trying not to do that, right? That's the goal. That's why you put out a survey to act on it. Amen? But we're trying to do that with one another. You know, um, the last point here, God's very nature is to bear all things. So that's really the second translation, right? Love bears all things. In Colossians 3, this is back to the church here reflecting God's heart. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You know, we're called to bear with one another and bear all things. Well, why? Guess what? Because God bears with all things constantly with us. Yeah. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to read this fast, but you can write this down. I'm going to start in Nehemiah 9, verse 9. Because what this is, is a quick history of God's interaction with His people. Early interactions in the Old Testament, right? right. And you're going to see how God bears with his people. I think like no other passage of scripture in the Bible. Okay? I love these survey scriptures. There's another one like in um, Acts 7, right? Stephen kind of goes through a history. It's Nehemiah 9. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to try to scan this a little bit. This is um, the entire Israelite nation repenting before God, confessing their sins. So they're making a laundry list of how they have tested God's patience and how God has borne with them. 
So Nehemiah 9 verse 9. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You set signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them. Remember that? Going through the Red Sea? So that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud. By night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. Great stuff. Look what all that God has done. (laughs) Then verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. And then it goes on, But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them, nor the pillar of fire by night. For 40 years, verse 21, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. Their children, verse 24, went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites, and on and on. Verse 25, they captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Then verse 26, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Verse 27, so you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them, but that when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. Surely that's got to be it, right? How many times have they been rescued in this one passage? Well, the next verse, but... As soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Uh, Verse 29, you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. Verse 30, finally ending this, For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Talk about love bearing with all things. And I skimmed that. I know that was long. But if you go back and read that, it's this laundry list of God blesses, they disobey. God blesses, they disobey. God blesses, they're super happy, then they disobey. God blesses, you know... Rescue, you know, um, rebellion, then rescue, rebellion and rescue. That's God's heart, though. He bears all things. He endures all things. That's what he wants to be with us, a gracious and merciful God. But can it be easy sometimes to not bear with one another? Any newlywed knows 
that it can be difficult to bear with one another. Any roommate knows it can be difficult to bear with one another. Any teen who has brothers and sisters or parents (laughs) knows it can be difficult to bear with one another, right? Even small things over a period of time that seemingly are trivial can build up to where we realize we've kind of retreated into a corner and decided not to bear with that person. That can happen, right? When we first got married, one of the first things, little, little discipling lessons I got was after you've played basketball and drenched your shirt in sweat, don't get into your wife's car, and it was her car, we had one car, she had purchased that car before we were married, don't get into your wife's car and drive home and get the car there just in time for her to go to work as a nurse, and she gets in the car in her nursing uniform into a wet seat. Don't do that. Don't do that. But to Sue's credit, you know, we're still together 30 years later, right? But that's one, that was just the opening shot of what she was going to have to bear with for many years. And hopefully I'm learning, right? I try to learn, right? Not to give her so many things to bear. But she didn't, she went all in with me. There's so many things. That's such a trivial thing. But there's so many things that she's had to bear with year after year. And prayerfully I've changed some. She's still bearing with me though. But she's all in. She took my last name. She became we're family. But isn't that what we've done with God? We are the family of God. Are we all in with one another? Is there anything where you have moved off to your corner and you stopped bearing with somebody? You stopped really forgiving them? Or you wouldn't call it that. I, you know, sure, I forgive them. I just don't talk to them. You know? I just don't. I really just stay away from them. You know, I don't see that as the example of God. I see God, someone, I see people spitting in God's face and God coming back for more. Over and over and over and over. I see God forgiving not seven times, but 70 times seven. I see God bearing with all the time. You know, I took aside some of my soccer, my new soccer buddies, right? Here in the, we, we've been playing soccer at 3.30 on Saturdays, some of us. And um, I was, whatever I was doing, fellowshipping up here last week, and I noticed, hey, we, just about everyone who plays soccer is, just happened to be standing right there, and so I just kind of did a quick D group for myself. I said, guys, I know I'm an older guy, and you probably, I want you to have, feel completely empowered to talk to me about my spirit on the soccer field. Because I'm 53 years old, I still think I'm 20. For some reason, I'm, talk, I'm barking out to Chris, you know, orders on the soccer field like we're playing in the World Cup. <laughs> this is not being televised, no one's a professional. You know, Chris didn't sign up for that. Chris is looking at me with a big smile. But I had to bring it. I'm like, this is a weakness of mine. You know, I'm sure I have many other blind spots, but at least least that's one I know about. And I wanted to make sure. It's like, I don't want to put a stumbling block in front of anyone. 
I don't want them to have to bear with me over and over and not feel like they can talk to me or I'm wrecking the vibe of any endeavor. I can, with my competitive, I've been known to wreck board games, you know, with my, my attitude. You know, Mike's nodding. Um, you know, it's, it's sad, and I'm not proud of it, but at least it's out there. So I'm like, they're like, okay, what can we say to you during the game to help you? And I'm like, I don't know, run by me and go, Jesus, you know. <laughs> Something, anything. Just bring me back to who I am as a disciple, right? But thank you for bearing with me. But what are we doing to help one another bear with each other? Let's not retreat. Let's put it all out there, guys. I'm going to finish with this scripture. The ultimate example... uh Uh-oh. There we go. Look at that. I only have two buttons and I managed to pick the wrong one. Um, This is the ultimate scripture of bearing with, bearing all things. Acts 7 in verse 54, this is the death of Stephen. This is after Stephen has just essentially rebuked the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard everything that Stephen had been saying, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's not what you want to say if you're being accused of blasphemy, right? I mean, he's claiming he can see God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Talk about imitating Jesus' heart. That's almost exactly what Jesus said on the cross. Don't hold this sin against my murderers, essentially. The ultimate example of bearing with is forgiving your murderers as you're being murdered. I bring up this example to say, what is it that we can't bear with? With one another. That's why I think God puts these things in the Bible for us. It's not to shame us into obeying. It's to inspire us. This is God's heart. There's no power that can stand up against this kind of forbearance. This kind of love. This kind of desire. Stephen is literally praying a prayer of protection over his murderers. This is what we're called to. It's a high calling. There's nothing that should happen in this fellowship that should cause us to withdraw protection from one another. I think we can agree. Amen.